has anyone watched that um, Netflix series called Stranger Things? Yeah, we have some fans. I'm like binging on that right now. I hadn't watched it yet, and I was up till 2 a.m. and 1 a.m. in the past couple nights. And so, um, <laughs> it's an interesting show. Um, all that to say, uh, my soul may be a little disturbed. Um, uh, but we've, um, shows like that, you know, there's, it's a sci-fi show. Sci-fi shows like that sometimes can awaken us to the reality that there's something bigger out there than we, than we can see with our eyes and our ears. And so, for for uh, all the, you know, the, the disturbing things about sci-fi, sometimes it can well us up and remember that um, there's more around us in this world than meets the eye, and that's true. And as uh, Christians, as we come to think about these things, we, uh, we think about Jesus and his presence, his everlasting, intensely close presence among his people. And uh, there was a line in that show yesterday where it was like, uh, you know, talking about these, these beings that were on the other side, you couldn't see them. And, and, it, and they said, it was as if, it's as if they're walking all around us all the time, and we could reach out and touch them if we could, if we could just see them. And uh, that's exactly what the presence of God is like. And uh, this last year, for, since September, this church has been studying and dwelling upon Jesus who is our Lord, who's the one that we follow, who's the one that we call king of the whole universe. And uh, if, you're, if you're new here, if this is your far, first time, this is a really interesting sermon because this is the co- first conclusion to like 43 sermons. <laughs> I haven't counted how many there are. There's something like that. Uh, so uh, you won't need to go back and listen to them all now, is what I'm saying. Uh, go ahead and... Um, and, and Get online if you're interested. But I've, I've talked a lot about Jesus this year. And uh, I'm going to do two conclusions because 43 sermons needs two conclusions. But I'm not going to just recap everything I've said. And so that would be boring for us all. It would be boring for me to do too. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just give a little bit of an overview of where we've come from in the last year in two parts. Today's part one, tomorrow, or next week is part two. Uh, but I'm not just going to repeat everything. I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about what we're left with. After a year studying Jesus and dwelling upon who he is and what he's about, what are we left with? And really, if you, if you have paid attention, if you do your own study of Jesus, we're only left with one thing, and it's this challenge. It's a challenge to follow him. It's a challenge of being devoted to him. Will we or will we not open our hearts to this man who lived 2,000 years ago and yet who was resurrected and and we believe lives so close that if we could just see him, uh, we would be able to reach out and touch him in this place Uh, and who we worship, therefore, uh, have come to know as part of God's very being. So uh, lots of of things to to, to recap, but we're going to be doing this in a way that uh, brings this challenge to the forefront. Will we be able to open our hearts and be devoted to this king? Now, we've said a lot about Jesus, and I, I, you know, I'm going to talk about um, devotion today, and specifically to Jesus being like a new groom. The bridegroom is another word. But we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, but in particular today... Uh, you know, just remembering where we've come from. This is Jesus here on the mountain, Mount of Olives, 
leading his followers, and here's the Jerusalem temple in which he'll go and preach. And right on the other side of that, just on the other side of those walls, if you can imagine, where just shortly after this scene depicts, he'll be crucified and laid in a tomb. And we talked about who he was in his time and place, because that's important. The Jesus who is in heaven now and who's with us close is the same Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. And his followers um, testified that he was offensive then. Like, he offended a lot of people. And, and we think about that, okay, so who's this guy who walked around and offended a lot of the religious leaders of his day? And we remember that uh, he, he comes into humanity and almost splits humanity in two. Those who have their hearts open to him and, and say and testify to his relationship that this is the thing that finally makes sense of my life. His disciples said, when, I, when we were with him, it was like our lives finally made sense they said, it's like, it was like Christmas time. There's this line at the beginning of the Gospel of John that said, it's like experiencing gift upon gift. And that meant it's like being at Christmas time and having lavish gifts around the, the, the tree, and you open one, and it's like the thing that you've always wanted. And then you put it aside and you open the next one, and it's the thing that you've always wanted more. <laughs> And it's like just the succession of opening presents. And you think of yourself surrounded with presents, things that you've always wanted. And, and there they are. And that's what it's like. Jesus doesn't promise to give us like um, all this stuff. But it's like relating with him and serving him as Lord is like getting gift upon gift. And his followers said, um, to open in your hearts to this guy who is offensive to some is like finally coming home. And yet for other people, he was offensive and, they, and he took, they took offense at him because he was challenging the very idols which stood between them and God. He was challenging the systems that were in place that oppress people and bring them down under others. Uh, and so uh, we have this Jesus in his time and place who was offensive and he still is if we have ears to hear. Uh, but he went about not just offending people and drawing people close. He also went about healing people. And we talked for a time about Jesus as a healer. And not just as a healer who could uh, do amazing things like open the eyes of blind people and help, helping them to see when they could never have seen before. And cleaning people and uh, washing people's feet who were, 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 ex were extremely dirty. But this becomes a symbol of the way God can take a dirty life and things that have been soiled in the human heart and make them clean once again. And so, and, and so when Jesus was going about healing, it was always with this message. Repent. For the kingdom of God is near. And with this other message, Forgiveness. This deep forgiveness, which never takes away the pain of hurt, but goes, goes down deep into the core of the human person and sets them free from being lost in their own misery. And we, we, we came uh, past Jesus' healing ministry, and we talked about, over Christmas, we talked about how uh, Jesus' family knew that suffering and joy we're not two things that were isolated from one another. How true joy in life, if we want to find true joy, actually sits, has a seat in suffering. And we began, we began realizing with this connection between John the Baptist's ministry, his baptism ministry, and then his being beheaded and killed, that he was going to walk away a type of life uh, 
ahead of Jesus that he was going to walk. So that suffering somehow is mixed up in this life of faith in a way that isn't just something we avoid and pray against, but we have spiritual eyes and we see into how suffering can work and how joy, true contentedness, can be found right in the midst of suffering. Uh, and then we finished off the series with a chunk of t- two chunks of sermons. One was about your personal life in Jesus. What does your personal life look like when it um, is aligned with Jesus? And we talked about consumerism and how our idols can come up in the way. And then after that, we talked about the resurrection and how, what Jesus' life means for us as a group of people. So we've covered a lot of ground this year, uh, and it's, it's been good. It's been really good, and I think that we've uh, learned a lot. But of course, we don't just study these things because we want our brains to get larger. We don't want the, just the information about Jesus. Uh, there's, the, there's the final call. Will you or will you not follow me? Will you sell everything you have and follow me? Will you take up your own cross and follow me? This is the question we're left with. When I was in, in university, I was in a, um, even I met, in, you know, my wife Eve and I met in university, and we were both studying world religions. And it was a four-year course in uh, the, the, the spectrum of the world religions that you can imagine, the big ones, and studying what they were about, what they were, uh, you know, what they, were, what they taught, what their followers uh, thought. And it was a very challenging, of course, environment because as Christians, we were both Christians at that point, um, we were trying to figure out what does devotion to Jesus look like in a world of people who have devotions to all sorts of things. And so by the end of that experience, we... we um, we were dating at that point, and we were, we were proud that our faith was kept intact. Our devotion to Jesus was still there, despite the amazing opportunity to learn about all these other ways of relating to God, um, and yet recognizing that we still believe that, that Jesus becomes the, the, the doorway through which we walk into God's presence. He is the, the sun to which everything else is like a shadow. And we came through with this, with this uh, faith intact. And uh, we actually bought each other from some cheesy Christian bookstore these, these kind of matching rings to celebrate our sort of intact devotion. And uh, I was, you know, at that point, I was, I was in this phase of my, my spiritual journey where um, I was sometimes drawn very close into God's presence it's interesting how that works. The spiritual journey can sometimes feel like that. You start off early in your faith, and sometimes, especially when, when um, there's lots of challenges, you can, uh, be, you can be very drawn to the close heart of God. And then when life gets easy and, you know, and there's not so many challenges, you feel like, oh, maybe I don't need God so much, and I can go find my happiness elsewhere. But I was at that phase where it was hard, and I was being uh, drawn into God's presence very, a lot during university. And I remember taking that ring once. You know, I had taken, taken it off my finger, and I was in this chapel, the university chapel, by myself. It was nighttime, and the stained glass windows were all lit up, and the, um, the, the candles were all lit, but no one else was there. Um, I forget, what was the name of that chapel? I forget. Uh, we, we were in that chapel, and I was, I was up, on, like, you know, behind the altar there, um, 
there, all the seats were out there. I was by myself. I was behind there. And I was just praying. I was on my knees. There was a cross there. And I was praying to God. And I was expressing, God, I, I want you. I want to be close to you. I want to have my life linked more closely with yours. And I took that ring off. And I put it on the ground right there. And I remember praying this prayer. And I don't know where it came from in my young 20s. God, I want to be married to you. That was my prayer. Like, you know, it's intense. I want to be married to you. That's, that's what, how closely I'm feeling to you right now. And when it comes to discipleship with Jesus, um, this image of a spiritual marriage, of, of that close of relationship, becomes one of the big ways that people for 2,000 years after Jesus have thought about relating with him. And it's an intense metaphor, uh, but it's one that I want to go into in this first part of the conclusion today. Next week, I will, we'll talk about suffering with Jesus as another way to show devotion to him. But this week, I'm going to go into this idea of this call to devotion uh, by way of this metaphor of marriage. So this picture of Jesus gives, you know, uh, an interesting insight into this long 2,000-year tradition. Uh, this is the, the sacred heart of Jesus, is what you know, this picture shows, that here he is, a wounded person yet who's yet alive, and uh, his heart, I don't think when I, if I see Jesus, when I see Jesus someday, I hope that he doesn't have his heart beating out of his chest, because that'd be just weird. Um, but it's like, it's this person who wears their heart, this person who suffers and gives their heart so over to the people, and it's this, almost this invitation, he's touching this heart, saying, come into this heart, come into my love for you, and come learn what, the, what it's like. And so, you know, as, as we think about this way of devotion, um, of, of Jesus being a groom, it comes straight from Scripture. It's not like people have just made this stuff up. You know, the, the last book in the New Testament, Revelation, talks about this so profoundly, mo most clearly probably in the, in the Bible. Let us rejoice and exult and give God the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So early, this is like written maybe 50, 60, maybe 100 years after Jesus, as late as 100 years. But, but very close to the time where people who were alive were remembering Jesus, or if they hadn't met him, they knew someone who knew him. And, um, and very early on, this image of Jesus being the groom, a new groom. Bridegroom is a way to say a new groom. I like that. I like the new groom language better because it gets that. Someone who's freshly married. Um, so Jesus is the, um, is the groom, and we, he's the lamb, and we as a church are his bride. Now, you know, for, for the guys in the room, this is sort of kind of, you got to twist our mind around this. You know, we are, you know, we are as a group a bride. That's the greatest metaphor to think about who we are as a group of people. And uh, where does this come from? The, book of, the writer of the book of Revelation didn't just make this up. Actually, Jesus himself talked about himself in this way. Uh, he came up and was challenged at one point during his life. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? I guess there was this, this debate over fasting here. And Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them. This is, remember, he talks in parables. He tries to get people who, who really want to know him to turn their ears up and think, uh, what is this about? So he says, the wedding guests cannot fast while the new groom is with them, can they? 
as long as they have the new groom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the new, the new groom is taken away from them and they will fast on that day. So he's planting this idea in their minds early on. Jesus himself, I'm like a groom. I'm like a new groom and you're like my bride. You have to think about it in that way if you're going to understand the depth of my love for you. And Paul writes about this most profoundly in Ephesians. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one. And he's been talking about being, uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit here. He says, this is a great mystery, and I'm applying it to the church. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive into this, because this, this really helps, this verse here and, and its context really helps us dive into this idea of us being Jesus' uh, bride. Uh, and Paul, I mean, he's saying it very clearly. Jesus is your bride, or Jesus is the groom, you are the bride. Uh, so here's Ephesians 5, in which that verse, that verse was 531-32. This is the book of the New Testament. Um, and so here's, here's what's happening in chapter 5. He's, uh, Paul is saying, the, the writer is Paul, he's saying there's two ways of living in this world. A light way and a dark way. And the light, it's like pleasing God by imitating his selfless love. He's trying to say to people who are Christians, he's writing to Christians just 20 years after Jesus died. He's writing to Christians. He's saying, uh, if you want to please God, you're going to try to imitate his selfless love in the world. You're going to figure out how to show that to the people around you and to the world at large. But there's also a dark way of being in the world. And if you want to be this way, all you're going to be doing is adding to the slumbery darkness that's around you. I mean, think about all the darkness around you. Uh, there's a way to just contribute to that. And that's what he's saying. And for the dark way, he's saying, here's what it's like. And he goes into great detail. He's like, it's like having sexual addictions. He says, he's, this is Paul. And, and consuming others. He's like it's, it's like, it's like that. If you find yourself just it's sort of so addicted sexually and consuming others in, in your own mind, in your own in your own lifestyle, it's just darkness. And, and, and then he goes on to being greedy. There's just this overwhelming need to have and to hold and to, to take care of yourself and having a sense of self, your own self-destiny tied up in your own hands. And uh, it's, like, it's like getting lost in foolish and vulgar ways of speaking. And what happens, therefore, in this way of darkness is like shameful, secret things find life and come into this world. Things that should never find life come into this world. But what's worse than just even getting lost in this is those people who find no shame in that at all. It's for people who just endorse it, saying, uh, this darkness is good. Let's, let's have more of it. And Paul says, this is just a waste of time. This is a waste of everybody's time, uh, and it's a willful ignoring of the wisdom around us. This is a dark way of being. And he's like, it comes uh, oftentimes through reckless living from doling your pain with wine. Don't be drunk. Paul says, and lose your life in reckless living. But the light, the light is different than this. The light is something new. It's something, it's the only power to free you, to be, help you be free in the world. It's marked by goodness and peace and freedom and truth and reverence. And then he stresses twice, gratitude. Like true gratitude, ability to just be grateful that you're breathing, if anything. If you're breathing in this world, you've, you, you're got more going for you than you don't, is the type of way gratitude comes to. And then, once, once you get this light way of being, then you have the courage to speak forth, forcefully against the darkness. 
with love and humility, but against the hidden slaveries of the world. And he says, what do you do with this light? Redeem it. Redeem the time, is what he says. Find the wisdom around you and learn to live in wisdom. So here, here's just some, some of the quote from chapter 5, a good, good quote. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to reckless living. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And here he goes, filled with the Spirit. You think, you think being drunk on wine is good. Be filled with the Spirit. Uh, the, the, the contentedness which drunkenness on wine brings you. The contentedness, the, the way that it takes the pain out of your life for just an instant. The, the way that you, you finally feel that you can take a deep breath and relax. You can let down your hair a little bit. Paul's like, okay, that's, that's all in good. But being filled with the Spirit is like, take that pain and have it dulled in my presence. Let me take my, your pain upon you, and I will heal you from that so that your pain will be no more. You don't have to numb it anymore. It'll be gone. Um, uh, you get the point. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying all these things. He's heading somewhere. He's going... I'm trying to describe what a marriage to the Lamb looks like. Freedom, not darkness, light. So he goes on, be filled with the Spirit. And this is what he says. It's like, you know, be always speaking psalms to one another is kind of the clunky way he says it in the book. And the point is this. Get the psalms so deeply in your heart that they become your own language. That as you speak, it's like you're speaking Scripture to one another. Um, and then, he, and then we're getting closer in this next point to spiritual marriage. Sing songs in your heart to the Lord. And then again, he stresses, be grateful. Because being grateful means that you're coming to health. Uh, and finally, what does being filled with the Spirit mean? It means submitting to one another. And he gets to the end here and he says, of course, he, he goes on this long teaching about marriage, and it, it, gets, it gets us in trouble a lot because it's a hard teaching because it talks about who should submit to who and all of that. I'm just going to skate around those things today. Uh, maybe someday in the near future I'll just go headlong at it. Uh, but he says, of course, I'm going to say a bunch of stuff here about marriage, and of course it means that each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. Of course, this, this is what the implication is. If you're married, you love your wife as you love yourself. And if you're a wife, you must respect your husband. And this is what a good marriage looks like. And he says, but here's the thing. I'm not talking about marriage and all this. I'm talking about you and Jesus. And you, plural, all of us, and Jesus. Here's what it looks like when we're married to the, to the Lamb, to God, to Jesus. And here it is. It's reverence for Christ. He is our head. When we're married to Jesus, we see him as our leader the one who is the brains of the operation, so to speak. And he loves us. And he gave himself for us. There's a pure love about him. A pure love that you're not going to find in any other person around you at this point in history. Um, he helps us live lives of freedom. He's with us and helps us be freed from those, all those ways of darkness. He, he's a... He's a husband, a new groom, which leads us as a bride out of that and into freedom. 
And where we're dirtied by that, where we're, where we're sullen and where we're, um, where we're sullied, uh, he cleans and washes us. Where we're dirty, he takes time to give us a bath. He cleans and washes us. And then after we're cleaned and dried, he puts on new clothes and he teaches us now what it is to love, what it looks like, what, what selfless love should look like. And that, my friends, is the hardest part of the whole deal because our hearts are so inclined to selfish thinking. But Jesus is there washing us, putting new clothes on us, and teaching us how to love. And all that's been jaded in us, and all that's been taken away from us. You think of childhood wonder and simplicity and the first love that we may have ever had in our life, and all of the naive hope. And then the world comes and just jades us and takes that out of us. And Paul says that he puts back inside of us all that's been jaded. That's the kind of groom he is. And what's our job in the role? What's our job in it all is to give ourselves to Jesus in open trust. That's what we do with our new groom. And he says at the end here, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Two will become one flesh. Now, this is a great mystery, and I'm applying it to Christ and the church. So devotion to Jesus, one of the great ways in, in history that has thought about the response to Jesus, a devoted response, is through this metaphor of being a bride. I'm just going to finish off today by ta- talking a little bit about how this has worked. There have been a lot of people in church history, a lot of great writers, who have come to talk about the bridegroom as the great metaphor. So I'm just going give, to give you two examples today of, of some great Christians who have lived and, and have done this. But this is just a good quote here because early on in the church, you know, in the first couple hundred years, this line kind of became a mantra for many Christians as they thought about their love for Jesus. This is like a prayer of many early Christians. I keep myself pure for you, O new groom, and holding a lighted lantern, I go to meet you. Isn't that a beautiful little prayer? Just a, pr- a, little, a little prayer of the heart that helps people draw close to Jesus. I keep myself pure for you, Jesus, a new groom. And holding a lighted lantern, I go to meet you. It's beautiful. Here are, two, here are our two examples today. I wanted to give us some real-life examples. Even, you know, uh, you know, later on in church history, uh, ones that get us closer to our time, even though we're not quite to the modern, modern day yet. This is Teresa, Teresa of Avila, and this is John of the Cross. These are two uh, Christians who uh, lived before the Reformation. Um, so those of you who know the Reformation, which means that's in the time the Catholic Church um, and many people who weren't in line with what the Catholic Church was teaching branched off and started sort of their own uh, their own way of being Christian. This was just before that. And actually, it was happening a little bit. The early tremors were happening during their time of, of that Reformation. And, and few Protestants, which we, this church kind of sits within that tradition, uh, few Protestants re- realized that there was Catholics who were reacting just as badly to the, the problems of the Catholic Church at the time. And these were two of the great... The great um, Christians during that time. So this is Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, and they've written a few books that have stayed with the Christian church and uh, have become really profound works. And both of them stress that uh, we are like 
a bride. And that's one of the really good ways to think about our relationship uh, with Jesus. So just, to, just a little bit about these two. Teresa, she was born in March of 1515 in Spain. When she was young, apparently she was really beautiful. Like, um, had, had beautiful blonde hair. And all these guys were after her. And she just was so taken up with God and Jesus. And her love, internal love for Jesus. That, that one day she cut all of that hair off. She buzzed it off. And became a nun. Much to her father's, her father was really upset about this. And so this, 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 is who, this is what she had done. Now, right after she became a nun, she became really ill. She, she was in a coma for three days. And after the coma, she, was, she struggled for like 10 years with arid faith. And what that means is like, even though she wanted to be close to God, she couldn't feel God. She was struggling. And it was during this time, uh, she... During her own aridness in faith, she becomes one of the greatest teachers on prayer and what prayer is about and how to pray and how to enter into God. Uh, and that's, that's, that's beautiful to me because it doesn't mean you always have to feel it. And she said that she, at one point she thought the more humble thing because of this aridness, this, she couldn't feel God. She thought the, one of the wiser things to do was just give up praying altogether. But later in life, she, she reflected on that and said, you know, that, that, was, that would have been the worst mistake of my life, is what she said. Um, so she was also, because church and the state weren't too different back then, she was also a really good politician and a religious person as well. And she writes this book, sorry that it's cut off here, it's called The Interior Castle. I've got it in my office. It's, it's called The Interior Castle. And The Interior Castle is her great metaphor for the human person. It's like, we are, we in, our, our spirit, our faith life, our heart is like a castle made of diamond. And you can see through all the walls. But there's many rooms. There's many rooms inside of, of us as people. And at the very heart of the castle lives the king, lives God. And we are on a journey through the many passageways of this castle to the heart of the castle to find and be close to and be married to God. Uh, and, and yet this, this journey through all these rooms is not an easy thing. Because uh, it's, we've, got to, we've got to make our way, and there's dangers along the way. Um, this is like maybe those of you who remember Dora the Explorer. There's always three dangers you have to get past to. Slithering snakes, the high peak mountains. It's kind of like that, but not so childish. Um, so that's, that's the interior castle. And she talks about prayer, and this is, this is a metaphor for the life of prayer and learning to enter into relationship with Jesus. She says, prayer is like intimate sharing between friends. If you can talk to the person next to you, you can talk to God. It's like an intimate sharing between friends. It means taking time frequently to be alone with him who we know loves us. And I love that little last part. We, we know with deep knowing that he loves us more than any other person around us could. And it's taking time to be frequently alone with him. The early rooms that you go through are filled with just little of the light that Paul was talking about. And our, those rooms are hard to get through because there's dangers and there's darkness and um, there's little light in there. It's, we can't quite see where we're going to get through. Um, but we've got to get through. We've got to get past those dangers, the things which tempt us, uh, and into the deeper uh, chambers of our heart. And she says that all the harm that comes on this journey comes from not understanding that God is very near. 
we forget that he's very near. Uh, and here, I'll just give this one quote from the book for you. This is about room four of 11, I, I think. Uh, you have already often heard that God espouses souls spiritually. He marries us spiritually. Blessed be his mercy that wants so much to be humbled. And even though the comparison may be a coarse one, I cannot find another that would better explain what I mean than the sacrament of marriage. Love united with love. And she goes to the great pain saying, if, you, if, you, if you're thinking this is a sexual thing, like this is, you're not thinking on a high enough plane. We're not talking about that kind of marriage, that, kind of, that aspect of marriage. We're talking about the love that which you're trying to have and hold in your heart, being united with the, the perfect love of the universe. She says, um, this kind of intimacy and experience with the greatest love of the universe is like a thousand degrees better than the marriage, the love you experience in earthly marriage. Uh, so she goes on and talks a lot about this in her book. So the interior castle, I would recommend the book to those who are interested in this. We get to John. John and Teresa are actually friends. They become friends with, they know each other. They're both uh, in Spain. He was born a little later. He's a little younger. Apparently, he was like four foot three. He was like, he was like this spiritual giant who is in uh, a body that you wouldn't assume that a spiritual giant would be in. And uh, he goes through a lot of suffering in his life. Um, he goes into spiritual orders. He, he goes, uh, meets Teresa. And then because of his, of his teachings, because the, you know, the Catholic Church had their thing and the Protestants left and, and the, the other Catholics were trying to make things better. And, and so John gets put in jail. And he, he languishes in jail for two years. And during this time where he has little food and um, isn't able to... Um, he doesn't, he doesn't have anything but his little cell. He makes friends with one of the, the jailers, the guards. And he convinces the, the guard to slip little pieces of paper into his cell. And with, gets a little pen. And over the course of two years, writes one of the most amazing books on prayer uh, with this theme in it. So John's an interesting story. And he ultimately writes four deeply spiritual classics. And uh, one of them is called The Dark Night of the Soul. And another one is called The Ascent to Mount Carmel. And the great theme of John is this. Take all that you desire and hope for in the world and that you put your affections upon, the relationships you hope that fulfill you, the things that you think will make you whole. Those things are like, uh, like dust compared to how worthy God is. Like, there's no, you can't even compare the things you're putting your affection upon to Jesus, to who he is and what he, what, what he, what he has for you. And so uh, he talks about this darkness and this light, which Paul talks about. And he's saying, how do you come into the light? You have to say no and keep yourself away from all that wants to become worshipped in your life. All the relationships, all the dreams, all the things that would stand in between you and God, they've got to be taken away. And the dark night is like this. Those people who say, I don't know where God is. I can't sense him. He's like, uh, God oftentimes takes people who are spiritual babies and weans them. So that they say, I, you know, I, I, I once was able to feel God. He was so close. And it's like, yeah, that's like a nursing child. You could feel God. You could feel the, the benefits coming from him. But 
at some point, God wants to grow that love up so that it becomes less selfish, so that you learn how to love in a way that you don't get anything back in return. You need to mature and grow up. So anyway, this is John, uh, and um, I'm going to read, read his great poem at the, at the very end here. Uh, but I would, uh, you know, for me, as a guy, you know, I look at, at John here, uh, and I think, you know, here's a guy who understood his deep identity as a bride. It's a hard thing for, for guys to do. Um, but I'll say this, too, before I, just, before I conclude, is that um, for, for, for those who are married in the room, you could probably testify to the fact that if you're also a Christian, you recognize you're in two marriages. And that can, those, those two marriages can sometimes conflict and cause problems. And oftentimes, our earthly marriages can um, completely distract us from the great marriage. That's not to say don't have a good marriage. Have a good marriage. But remember that you've got another marriage as well. And for those who aren't married and don't want to be, then, then you've got a groom who you can go to and find intimacy with. And it's, it'll be the greatest marriage that you can ever imagine. And for those of you who aren't married and that want to be married, um, this isn't to say that you shouldn't try. Um, but there, but, but in, in your waiting, and in the heartbreak of oftentimes of the waiting, um, there's another marriage that you can be investing in as well. And it's, it's with the one who loves you perfectly. So uh, I'll end with this. How do we be a bride to Jesus? How do we do that? If, we, if, if, if the greatest call is to be devoted to him as a, as a bride, how do we do that? What's that like? Um, and it's like Teresa said, learn to live in the light. Get through the darkness. Put the darkness aside and walk into the light of Jesus, which is to take some time in your life and learn how to be satisfied and learn how to turn your heart to him day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute. And get into some of these books. If you've never read the great books on prayer, um, come let me know if you want to know what they are. And I will direct you to them. Um, prayer is the great way. But I'm going to finish here with this. John's poem. This is John's great poem that he, he writes. In these books, Ascent to Mount Carmel and Dark Night. You can just see, see again, this isn't sexual. This is, this is more, much deeper than that. He's praying to Jesus. He, he is the one praying here. He's saying, One dark night, fired by love's urgent longings, oh, the sheer grace, I went out unseen, my house being now all stilled, full contentment in the presence of Jesus, in the search for him, in darkness and secure by the secret ladder, Disguised, ah, oh, the sheer grace. In darkness and concealment, my house. Now being all stilled. Oh, that glad night in secret for no one saw me. Nor did I look at anything. With no other light to guide than the one that burned in my heart. Nothing else. I wanted nothing else in this world more than Jesus. This guided me more surely than the light of noon to where he was awaiting me, him I knew so well, there in that place where no one appeared. O guiding night, O night more lovely than the dawn, O night that has united the lover with his beloved. 
transforming the beloved in her lover upon my flowering breast, which I kept holy for him alone. There he lay sleeping, and I caressed him. There in a breeze from the fanning cedars. When the breeze blew from the tower as I parted his hair, it wounded my neck with its gentle hand, suspending all my sense. So friends, as you think about responding to Jesus today, as you think about your devotion to him, I would invite you to come forward to this table, which is a beautiful way week after week to express your love, to say, the very body which you broke for me, Jesus, I take into myself. It's a very intimate, very intimate um, practice that Jesus teaches us to do. And uh, whatever prayer that's on your heart, whatever desire that you have for God, this next 10 minutes here is a beautiful time to express that to him as the space is made here for us to um, tell our God once again just how much we love him. So, friends, the table is set, and everybody here is welcome.